Strictures on Abolitionism, Part D, from Bible Defense of Slavery by Josiah Priest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Strictures on Abolitionism, Part D, National Colonization of the Free Black Population of the United States, Advocated, by the Publishers. Influence of Slavery on the Prosperity of the States much has been said and written respecting the influence of slavery on the general prosperity and advancement of the states where it exists unwarrantable comparisons have been made and unjustifiable conclusions formed by those who understood not the relative condition of the free and the slave states nor the causes which operated to produce the difference which actually exists the contrast between Kentucky and Ohio, for example, has been often drawn, and the real difference magnified to an extent which would well-nigh justify the conclusion that they existed in different ages, in different climes, and under different forms of government. That there is a difference between these two states, taking into consideration their ages as states, we are free to admit. But, that the difference is wholly owing to the fact of one being a slave and the other a free state is false both in principle and in fact if this were true the same principle would hold good when applied to different counties and sections of kentucky itself but that it is not true facts clearly demonstrate for by examination into this matter we find that in the wealthiest most intelligent and refined sections of that state as well as of any of the slave states the greatest proportion of slaves are to be found we can cite two counties and two parts of counties and indeed two individual cases and in every instance show that there is a marked difference in favor of the slaveholder when confined to the native-born citizens of the state Ohio, it is true, has more flourishing towns and cities, and has increased more rapidly in population than Kentucky. It is also true that there is more poverty and pauperism in proportion to the population, and more taxation in proportion to her aggregate wealth and improvements than there is in Kentucky. This fact will hold good in comparing any town, city, and manufacturing population with that of the peaceful inhabitants of the country engaged in the healthful, ennobling, and life-giving pursuits of agriculture, horticulture, etc. Towns, cities, and manufacturing districts are the hotbeds of vice, misery, pauperism, and degradation. It is there the extremes of wealth and poverty meet. It is there that corruption and human wretchedness are presented in their most loathsome forms says coleman in his most estimable work on agriculture quote, the great cause of the evils which afflict humanity and the multiplication of crime and the disorders of society he attributes to the fact that the cultivation of the earth is deserted and innumerable multitudes pour into cities and towns and filling every mechanical art and trade, destroy each other by a competition in articles 
of which the demand is necessarily limited. Close quote. But to what is the difference between these states attributable, if not to the fact of the one being a slave, and the other a free state? It is said that the one, though much younger, has a population more than double that of the other. There must be some cause or causes for this marked difference. There is, unquestionably. That it is not altogether attributable, however, to the one alluded to, is evident from the fact that other newly settled portions of our vast domain have as far surpassed Ohio, in point of rapid increase of population, as Ohio has Kentucky. It must be true, then, that the difference manifest in the relative prosperity of different states and sections of the Union is attributable to other causes than that of the existence of slavery. What, then, are these causes in the case of these two states? One very important circumstance, which has doubtless operated more effectually to retard the progress of general improvement in the state of Kentucky than any or all others, was the fact of her territory having been originally a part of Virginia. This circumstance, or rather circumstances, growing out of this, gave rise to an almost unending warfare respecting the title of most lands within her boundary. Large and conflicting individual surveys, having been made previous to her separation from Virginia, gave rise to a state of things of a most unfortunate and discouraging character, and which were measurably unknown in the settlement of any other state. Indeed, it is a matter of doubt whether any other than the valiant Boone and his gallant compatriots and their posterity ever would have surmounted these difficulties. The wealthy proprietors of those immense surveys were mostly citizens of other states, and being uninfluenced by any of the motives which proximity of residence and a common feeling of interest in the general welfare and prosperity of the state as citizens, would have naturally engendered. They waged a combined warfare against the hardy immigrant, which few but a Kentucky pioneer ever would have withstood. In a multitude of instances, after having penetrated the dark recesses of the forest, and driven the wild beast and the wilder savage from their strongholds and native haunts, after having surmounted all the many difficulties of a pioneer settler, and erected for himself and dependents a comfortable home, and reduced to cultivation a large farm, he was compelled to pay for his lands a second, third, and perhaps fourth time, or forsake all, without the hope of fee or reward, and in his old age, again penetrate the wilderness and commence anew with the same uncertainty of being able to hold what he might purchase, and obtain by a similar outlay of money and labor. Thus have we a brief and imperfect description of the difficulties against which the early settlers of Kentucky, 
and indeed many of the slave states, had to contend. Difficulties which existed not in the early settlement of Ohio and most of the other northwestern states, where the settler derived the title of his lands direct from the general government. Indeed, in some portions of Kentucky, land litigation is not yet ended, and many an honest farmer knows neither the day nor the hour that he may be called upon to give up his home, or compromise with some foreign land-jobber at a heavy sacrifice. The early settler of Ohio experienced nothing of all this. Invited to his home by the superior fertility of the soil, the mere nominal government price of $1.25 per acre, and the additional inducement of every sixteenth section being set apart for the education of his children, combined with the fact of the title to the land being indisputable, the wonder would have been, had not the state increased rapidly in population. Whereas the entirely different state of things in the early settlement of Kentucky doubtless retarded her general improvement twice, if not thrice, the length of time that intervened between the adoption of the two states into the Union. This cause alone, other circumstances being equal, is well-nigh sufficient to justify the actual difference which is obvious in the general prosperity of the two states. But there is another cause of almost equal magnitude. Kentucky, like most of the slave states, is decidedly, or has been, thus far in her history, an agricultural state. Her leading interests are identified with the cultivation of the soil. Her wealth, consequently, does not tend to concentrate in cities and towns, and is not, therefore, as fascinatingly displayed as in her more youthful rival, Ohio. Her population is much more sparse, her citizens having inherited, from their natural ancestors, the patriotic, hospitable planters of the Old Dominion, an inherent desire to hold large bodies of land. This peculiar feature of their organization contributes materially to affect her general prosperity. The more wealthy, as their means will permit, seek to enlarge their farms by purchasing the lands of their less fortunate neighbors, thus driving them to other states or to less eligible and valuable situations within their own limits. This circumstance has contributed largely to drain off the population. Thus, for many years past, the tide of emigration has been from instead of to the state. Another evil growing out of this custom is this. It is in a large number, perhaps a majority of instances, an injudicious investment of capital. Many have continued this course until their lands have increased far beyond their ability to cultivate them. The result is that the lands are made to yield a very small percent on their nominal value, and the state is impoverished, not only by a decrease of her population, but by the resources of her rich and fertile lands being very imperfectly developed by an injudicious 
and often almost ruinous system in cultivation. Thus, much the greater portion of the surplus capital of the state is lying comparatively dormant. Whereas, if those large farms were reduced to a size proportionate to the force employed to cultivate them, the landholders would become much more numerous, the farming population would be much increased. This would lead to a proportionate increase in the population of the towns and cities, as these increased an enlarged home demand for the farmer's products would be created, and thus would all work together harmoniously for the common good of every class of citizens. As these land monopolies became broken up, and the farms reduced to a size which would enable each farmer to cultivate, judiciously, whatever land he might chance to own, the resources of the soil would be much better developed, and the aggregate wealth and population of the state would be greatly increased. The surplus resources of capitalists would then seek investments in manufacturers and commerce, in the development of the mineral resources of the state, and in the construction of public works of internal improvement. All of which, if properly managed, would prove a far more profitable investment of capital, and would contribute greatly to the general improvement and prosperity of the state at large. Experience has clearly demonstrated the fact that capital judiciously invested in manufacturers in the slave state is as productive as in the free whether the labor made use of be free or slave labor investments in bank stock have proved eminently profitable and the salutary influence of judiciously managed public works upon the general improvement and prosperity of the slave states is also fully established. These have been generally constructed at a much heavier outlay of capital than in some of the northern free states, not because the one were free and the other slave states, but because of a want of experience in the construction of such works, the sparseness of the population, the greater natural difficulties to be surmounted, and the much greater length to which these improvements must necessarily be extended, to form connecting links between important commercial points. Yet, notwithstanding all these opposing circumstances, the fact is clearly established that the construction of railroads and other works of internal improvement in the slave states may be made both practicable and profitable and we believe the time is not far distant when these iron bands of commercial intercourse will traverse the sunny regions of the south as well as the sterile plains of the north when the world's thoroughfare connecting the atlantic with the great pacific upon which will concentrate the combined commerce of the earth all tending to that modern ophir whose exhaustless treasures have already aroused the cupidity of the most powerful nations of the globe, we say the time is not far distant when this mighty triumph of American enterprise, together with the world's great speaking trumpet, the magnetic telegraph, will be extended from the Mississippi to the Californians, 
from the Atlantic to the Pacific shore, mostly, if not wholly, upon slave territory. This we speak of not boastingly, but as a natural result of the present existing state of things, which the combined efforts of abolitionists and free soilers, and all the heterogeneous mass of conflicting elements and powers, which may be brought to cooperate with them, cannot avert. This unnatural conflict of folly and madness may be continued until the heart-strings of the nation are rent asunder, and our grand confederacy dissolved. But whether, in this event, the South would be the loser, is a question which, at least, admits of discussion. She has within herself the elements of a great nation, a mighty empire, which such a result would, doubtless, tend rapidly to develop. And we doubt not that, in a few years, she would exhibit to the world a model government, combining as many of the elements of true greatness as any that ever existed, while her chivalrous citizens would possess the patriotism, the independence, and the invincible courage to defend her against the combined powers of the earth. Many other considerations might be enumerated, but these, we trust, are sufficiently conclusive to prove to the satisfaction of every candid, honest, unprejudiced mind, that the differences which apparently exist between the general increase, prosperity, and improvement of the slave states and the free, are attributable not alone to the existence of slavery. But we are told that slavery is an evil. So is war an evil and viewing it in the same light, government may also be considered an evil, since it is an abridgment of liberty. Yet have they both received the sanction, and continue to exist, by the appointment of an all-wise and beneficent providence. There is, probably, not a succession of seasons, of day and night, of sunshine and storm, which we cannot find some portion of the human family ready to denounce as evil. Yet were they all ordained in wisdom, and are continued unto us in mercy. The world in which we live has much of evil in it, and, as rational beings, we often have the power of making a choice of evils. Between the evils of slavery, and any of the evil systems of abolition and emancipation, which have ever yet been submitted to the American public, we fancy we discover a marked difference, that of slavery being an evil of much less magnitude, attended with fewer unhappy consequences to both races. We would, therefore, act the part of wisdom, and of many evils choose the least, it being the abuse and not the legitimate use of the institutions wisely ordained by God, and sanctioned by human experience, that constitute the evil growing out of them. Slavery, when considered with reference to the white race alone, may be considered an evil. There is probably no species of property which is so troublesome, 
hazardous and expensive, and subject to so many contingencies as negro slave property. The slave requires constant care and attention upon the part of the master. He must be fed and clothed and nursed during the years of infancy and childhood and the hours of sickness. There is no passive state. If not actively employed, he is a bill of expense, an object of earnest solicitude, for whose every overt act the master is held accountable. A more responsible, perplexing situation can hardly be imagined than that of an individual surrounded by a large number of slaves of all ages who are dependent upon him, both in sickness and in health, in helpless infancy and decrepit old age, for food, clothing, and indeed all the necessaries of life. Let flood or fire, famine or pestilence, or whatever of the manifold evils and misfortunes to which human life is incident, come upon him or them. He alone is the principal sufferer. The wholesome and salutary laws and customs of the slave states, instead of leaving the slave, who constitute the laboring class, when a child of misfortune, dependent upon the cold charities of the world, or the meager provisions of the poorhouse, or the charity hospital, require that the master should minister to his necessities, and succor him in affliction. Often is it the case that men of wealth thus situated become, by these misfortunes alone, seriously involved in debt, and in some instances reduced to a state of bankruptcy. Indeed, we have been sometimes led to regard it as a matter of surprise that slaveholders did not, for their own sakes, turn their slaves loose upon the world at all hazards, and thus rid themselves of a species of property which was only evil, and that continually. But this, their own inherent sense of propriety, their regard for the peace and safety of their families and fellow-citizens, and above all, the common feelings of humanity, prompted by their native sympathy for the benighted negro, whom they know by a correct estimate of his mental inferiority and consequent incapacity to buffet with the conflicting elements of life, and protect and secure for himself and family the necessaries of a comfortable subsistence, would not permit him to do. Remove these difficulties, and provide for the slaves an asylum, a land adapted, in climate and soil, to the peculiarities of his nature, where he may enjoy the rights of citizenship and the protection of our government, and thousands of Christian slaveholders, prompted by Christian benevolence, pure as that crystal fountain which emanates from the throne of redeeming love, will, despite the sacrifice of property, emancipate their slaves, and thus free themselves from the evils of slavery. But there is another evil of much greater magnitude, one in the estimate of which dollars and cents cannot be taken into account. This is an evil growing not so much out of the institution of slavery, 
as out of the existence of the black race among the whites, whether in a state of bondage or freedom. The groveling and corrupting tendency of the Negro's mind, his proneness to sensual indulgence, and the unrestricted gratification of the baser propensities of his nature, render his existence in every community, without regard to his relative position, an evil of the most serious character. It has been alleged by abolitionists that the marriage relation is not recognized by the laws of slavery, and that the sacred rights appertaining thereto are violated with impunity. But this is not true. Custom and public sentiment, the parents of law, having established those in such a manner that they are seldom disregarded by the slaveholders, except in extreme cases, whilst by the blacks themselves they are as seldom ever regarded or observed. This want of virtue and constancy on the part of these people has a most demoralizing and corrupting influence upon the youth of whatever community they exist to any extent, whether as freemen or bondmen. The existence of any inferior class of people in any community, a people who are incapable of any voice in the government under which they live, between whom and the legitimate citizens of the country there is an impassable barrier, has ever been considered an evil of no minor consideration. But especially is this the case, where imbecility of intellect and an unrestricted indulgence of the baser passions and propensities of their nature constitute the highest ambition of that people. Many evils of a less baneful character have attracted the attention of existing functionaries of the government, and been the subject of legislative action, and the question remains to be solved, why should not this? But there is an evil abroad in our land, which, next to abolitionism itself, is the greatest positive evil of a social character known to an American citizen. Like the memorable outpourings of divine wrath upon the ancient Egyptians, which passed every threshold, and left its blighting impress upon every family circle, so the curse of which we speak is one which has a deleterious influence upon almost every member of every community in which it exists. We allude to the existence of the free black population in the United States, than which a more indolent, degraded, corrupting, miserable class of beings does not exist within the pale of civilized society. Destitute of moral principle and devoid of native energy, their mode of life is in unison with the base propensities of their nature, which they seek alone to gratify. End of Strictures on Abolitionism, Part D